Midnight Beach Party here on Monster Kid Radio. That's the name of the song from the band Invisible Dracula from their album, The Invisible EP. You can find them over at invisibledracula.bandcamp.com. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, welcome to episode 199 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited to have you here because we are looking forward already to episode 200, which is coming out here in a couple of days. To get ready for episode 200, well... Let's clear the decks. And what I mean by that is that we're going to take a listen to some audio that's not appeared here on the show before, but it's something that I recorded with various guests in the past. Now, I've had people like Alan Trump, Paul McComas, Jonathan Lampley, Nicholas Hatcher, and Keith Rainville on the show, talking about various topics, various subjects, and for time or for pacing or for whatever reason, I ended up not including all of the audio that I recorded with them on their episode. So that's what we're getting this time on Monster Kid Radio, clearing out some of the audio that I've been holding on to from the previous episodes so that we have a clean slate once we hit episode 200. And of course, talk a little bit about Creature from the Black Lagoon, my favorite film of all time. I've talked about it here on the show repeatedly. We talked about it in episode number one of Monster Kid Radio. We had a few episodes of that Monster Kid Radio spinoff that we used to do, Creature Cast Among Us, and talking about nothing but Creature. I love me some Gilman, and apparently so do some of the listeners, because we have an analysis, a breakdown of the first film. And in this analysis... We get to see who's on screen as the Gilman, how long the Gilman is on screen, that sort of thing. So we're going to be presenting that after we get into some feedback. And you know what? Why don't we go ahead and dive into some of this feedback right after this. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. From outer space, they came with a dastardly plan to steal the minds of the youth. Stands in their way in Danny Johnson saves the world. See our hero battle strange invaders in their rampaging metal monstrosity. See prehistoric creatures come to life on the silver screen. See bizarre, terrifying monsters. We have an email from Mark R. Leeper. You can find him over at leapers.us slash Mark Leeper. Leeper is spelled L-E-E-P-E-R. So leapers.us slash Mark Leeper, where he posts a number of film reviews. 
I get lost on Mark's website every time I go there because there's just so much content here. Anyway, he wrote in about the mummy's hand. Now, we talked about that last week with Nicholas Hatcher, and we were talking about the tana leaves. He writes, you were asking on the show if tana leaves were real. Ah, would that they were. They are a complete fiction. That's what I kind of thought, but didn't know if maybe they got the idea from something. Anyway, he continues, on the other hand... Imhotep was the real deal. He was one of the great geniuses in history. He was an engineer, an architect, and a doctor, and he built the first pyramid. You can even look him up on Wikipedia. Earlier this year, I was doing some research about Imhotep because that's what monster kids do. And I did stumble across the fact that Imhotep was a real guy, that there was a real Egyptian named Imhotep, and he did a lot of impressive, amazing things. He does have a Wikipedia entry that I've poured over numerous times because, well, again, it's what monster kids do, right? Mark, thank you for writing in. I really recommend people check out his website to go read his movie reviews. Good stuff over there. We also got a voicemail. Derek, hi, Joe Iden Colin, and just listened to the uh, Mummy Sam podcast and really enjoyed it. I always liked that movie, and it wasn't until recently that I saw it. I believe Turner Classic ran it about a, a year or so ago, and uh, I really did enjoy it. And, and, and I'm not a big fan of the Mummy movies, you know, the Hammer, the Universal. Not a huge fan of them, but I, I did enjoy that one, a little different uh, spin on it. Many, many, many congratulations on the Rondo Award. Congratulations. That is wonderful, and it is well-deserved, and I'm very happy for you that I know. I always knew I was listening to a quality podcast. Now with this award, everybody knows it. So fantastic job. I'm uh, very happy for you. Congratulations. Uh, you mentioned in the last uh, podcast towards the end about um, sci-fi and horror classic stuff showing up on TV. Yeah, I, that is something that has... I don't know, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but, you know, it's the advent of streaming movies and DVD sales that has taken away from television these type of genre classic movies. That, yes, they do, they still do show up once in a while. I mean, hell, Forbidden Planet was on Turner Classic last week, and I was able to record it. But uh, they do still show up, but just not the way they used to. The late night weekend horror uh, sci-fi, that's pretty much gone. And it's really too bad. It's really too bad because in a lot of ways, that's how I found a lot of these movies, by just, you know, appointment television, seeing them listed in the newspaper and then watching them that night, you know, or just channel surfing and finding them. And it, it just doesn't happen. We do have Sven Gulli. I get Sven Gulli around here, and I'm making a point to watch it every week because he's the only one, he's one of the few people still doing it. And I'm able to get him uh, on my cable system. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it, it would be nice to see this stuff show up on television. But, but the flip side of that is, is you know, we get these DVDs, and it's I'm a big fan of special features. I'm a big fan of audio commentaries, good audio commentaries. And with the DVD, we get that stuff. So that's why people buy the DVD. And I think that's one of the things that affects this stuff not showing up on television. It's just... It's too easy for us to get it anytime we want. And, you know, part of that's too bad, but, I mean, I love special features on DVDs, man. I think the best audio commentaries are the classic media. Uh, a few years back, they put out a bunch of the Godzilla movies, including the first one. The audio commentaries on, on those discs, especially the ones done by uh, Ed Gajaszewski and Steve Rifle, are some of the best audio commentaries ever that I've seen or that I've heard. 
But, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I would like to see this stuff showing up on television. I just don't think it's going to happen anymore. I think that time has come and gone. And part of me is kind of sad about that because a lot of us got our first impression of these movies when we were watching them on television. I just don't think that happens anymore. And we have channels like, you know, the Sci-Fi Channel, which, you know, to tell you the truth, I haven't sat and watched anything on that Sci-Fi Channel uh, since, like, Farscape went off the air because they are just too wrapped up in their own productions, you know, in those Asylum movies they put on every Saturday night. They're just too wrapped up in that stuff, you know. Like, Sci-Fi is not, in my opinion, what it should be, you know. I want to see uh, classic Sci-Fi movies and classic horror movies on the Sci-Fi Channel, and they just don't have any interest in doing that. You know, and it's really too bad. Uh, but like I mentioned, we do get some Turner Classic ones, some stuff. We get some Gooley, but uh, yeah, I see what you're talking about, and I totally agree. Anyway, uh, again, congratulations on the Rondo Award. Well-deserved, and uh, I will keep listening. And if you ever come to any shows out, you know, on the uh, East Coast, I'm in Pennsylvania, I'm going to try to get to the Monster Bash this year. Uh, so we'll see. But uh, I'm hoping to meet you sometime, so... Uh, Look forward to that too, but I especially look forward to all the podcasts coming coming down and uh congratulations on two hundred closing in on two hundred episodes. That's fantastic. You know, I think my thoughts are pretty clear on the mummy films at this point. I loved the mummy's hand. I cannot wait to get Nicholas back on the show to do the rest of the mummy films. We'll get through them throughout the year. It'll be exciting for me and I hope you guys and gals dig it too. You know, as far as sci-fi on TV, that sort of thing. Yeah, I know there are so many more channels out there now and me TV and these retro channels will play some of these classic monster movies. I just wish that it was like an event to see a movie on network television that you don't normally see. Maybe we are long past those days since, well, you can get movies pretty much on demand through a number of different channels, most of them legal. And I suppose you still have things like Sharknado Night on sci-fi and things like that. But wow, is that really what it came down to? Instead of like the network television premiere of something like Planet of the Apes and everybody went nuts and tuned in to watch it. Instead, we have the big showings of Sharknado on sci-fi at the bars. And nothing against Sharknado. I mean, I watched it. You know, I'm not going to say nothing bad about Sharknado. If people dig it, that's fine. It's just, it's not the same. It really isn't. And I kind of miss that. I've seen some fan edits online of people taking movies and breaking them up with commercial breaks and adding some station identifications and a little bit of static here and there and making the movies feel like they've been recorded on VHS or even beta off of their local television station showing this movie. The one that I can think of off the top of my head right now is John Carpenter's The Thing from the early 80s, which is a good film, and to see it in that fashion is it's fascinating to me it's interesting but yeah it's not quite the same and i think those days are long gone i think you're right joe that said we live in an incredible time when we can stream movies we can go on to youtube and check out a bunch of public domain films amazon netflix hulu my roku box we have so many movies at our fingertips right now like right now if i decided i wanted to watch a monster movie instead of recording this podcast i could do it i've got two tvs in the home and each one can bring in hundreds of movies through different networks right now i mean i wouldn't be able to watch things like ultraman 80 if it wasn't for crunchyroll hooked up to my xbox so we definitely have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to immediate access to these movies i think one of the reasons i really enjoy horror hosted programming though is because you do get the breaks you may have some local flavor 
You might have a horror host doing something at a local event, bringing somebody in for an interview, that sort of thing. You know, it's it's a far cry from the classic monster movies, but we have a local independent wrestling promotion here in Portland, Oregon, and I watch it. It's on at midnight, so I have to DVR it. But I don't fast forward through all the commercials because they actually have some of the local commercials for the sponsors of the program with some of the performers from the wrestling program in the commercials selling things like a Subway sandwich or a Voodoo Donut. I hope I didn't lose any Monster Kid cred by admitting that I watch independent wrestling promotions here in Portland. But my point is, I really love the local flavor that this kind of programming brings as kind of like a sideshow to the main attraction. And I feel like the movie nights on our major television networks did the same thing with the commercials and that sort of thing. I remember saving VHS and beta tapes of movies that I recorded off of regular network television. And I got really used to seeing the commercials so much so that the commercials were part of the viewing experience for me. Even if I tried to fast forward or I tried to pause the recording while I was recording the movie to begin with, it just became part of the experience. So, so, there's that, and I'm going to stop rambling and play another voicemail. Hey, Derek, this is Richard, Monster Movie Kid here, wanting to just touch base and share with you about a new film review that I have just posted over at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com, and something I think you will find interesting as well as the listeners. I'm continuing my ongoing look at the uh, films of Boris Karloff. You know, I started with my 31 Days of Halloween, and I just couldn't get everything in, obviously, in a month. So I'm going on throughout the year and probably even into next year as I look at the films of Karloff. And uh, the film that I just posted a review on today is The Hope Diamond Mystery from 1921. This is a 15-chapter serial that has been virtually unseen for 94 years. And uh, Serial Squadron has just recently released uh, a DVD on this. They have done some fantastic restoration. And uh, I've, the review I've actually posted is a fairly extended review. Uh, I talk a little less about the story and a lot about the actual DVD itself. I, I want to commend Eric Stedman over at Serial Squadron for the work he's doing with restoration, the work that he is doing with limited funds. Amazing that this film is available uh, for Karloff fans. I do have some complaints about the DVD packaging itself. I think there's some room for improvement I have to admit, sadly, that I was really disappointed by the choice of music. Uh, at times, it was it was actually very good, but there were other times that it just, um, I felt that there was some really missed opportunities. The theme song, for one, to me, sounds incredibly cheap. It sounds like a 1990s Nintendo video game. I can't get that out of my head. It's an infectious little tune, but I, I really felt like there was there was room for improvement there and I also uh, I mean there was one point they include like what sounds like rave music like contemporary you know dance music that just seems so anachronistic the music definitely is, is perhaps the weakest point of all this I mean the film restoration is amazing considering how old the print is I love having this in my collection but there were some some opportunities for improvement so I, I encourage you and, and all the listeners to go over to monstermoviekid.wordpress.com, take a look at the Hope Diamond Mystery Review, share your comments over there at WordPress or on Facebook or through this uh, podcast. And I want to hear what you have to think, Derek, because I know you've seen this. So uh, share some thoughts on the Hope Diamond Mystery, what you thought about it. Uh, with that, uh, of course, as always, sir, you're doing fantastic work. Take care, 
and we will talk to you soon. All right. So uh, I've been sitting on this voicemail for a while. It actually came in, I think, back in March, and I don't know why I sat on it. I kept meaning to play it, and I figured this was a good opportunity to go ahead and go back in time with Rich, the Monster Movie Kid, and listen to what he had to say about this serial, The Hope Diamond Mystery. I really, really enjoyed this serial. Now, this actually ended up on the 2014 Holiday Gift Guide here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm a big fan of this production. Now, there's 15 episodes. I'd say, I'm just guessing now, maybe three hours or so of content, maybe a bit more. The tone is a little all over the place, but that's a good thing. For me, I really enjoyed the back and forth, the different time periods, that sort of thing. Boris Karloff, man, this is a lean and mean Boris Karloff. This is before the success of Frankenstein. This is before he found his success in front of the camera at all, period. So he looks skinny. He's gaunt in spots. And that actually works for his character. Now, he's not necessarily the lead. He does play a dual role, sort of. This is more an ensemble piece about a number of people all connected in one way or the other, or they want to be connected in one way or the other, to the Hope Diamond. There are some horror elements, some spooky elements, but it's also a serial, so there's some action and just some straight-up drama and mystery and suspense. It's really good. I dig it a lot. I'm a big fan of what Eric Stedman and the Serial Squadron are putting out, SerialSquadron.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for that. Now, Rich made some comments about the music, and... When he posted a review to this over on his website a couple months back, I think I made a comment there as well. The music for this serial, it's not the original music. In fact, this is a silent serial. So you get title cards, that sort of thing. The music is all from modern resources. Specifically, I believe most of it came from a guy by the name of Kevin McLeod. And if you listen to a handful of podcasts, you know this man's music because it's all royalty-free music that he makes available for free through his website, Incompetech.com. I've used his music on podcasting projects in the past. Some of the podcast promos that I play these days on Monster Kid Radio have used this man's music. It's good stuff. It's solid work. And it's free, so why not? The only restriction is that you're supposed to give a credit to Kevin McLeod for using his music, and most people do, including Eric Stedman. The name does appear in the credits, and sometimes the music fits. Sometimes, yeah, like Rich said, there's a few spots here and there, especially the the rave scene he's talking about. There's this party scene and some modern-ish type music has crept in. It doesn't fit. I mean, we know we're watching something from the silent era, so it just really didn't seem necessary to try to put some modern-ish music in there to make it more, I don't know, palatable or or digest. It just didn't make sense to me, so... I agree with Rich. That said, it wasn't enough to take me out of the serial and out of the story. In fact, I'm going to disagree with Rich. I kind of liked the opening theme. Yeah, it's a little basic, but it kind of became the signature piece. I got used to hearing it every time a new chapter started. So, you know, I was there. It primed the pump for me when I was sitting down to watch it. I didn't watch this in all one sitting. And because it is a silent film and a silent serial at that, it's a different kind of viewing experience that I'm used to. Most of us watch talking movies these days. To watch a silent film, it does require a certain mind shift or mindset, I feel. And by using the music that he did, I think Stedman gave us an audio cue that we can use to kind of shift into the mindset, into the world of the Hope Diamond Mystery. There are a number of excellent titles 
over at theserialsquadron.com. I highly recommend you get your hands on some of these releases. I've got a couple here. I plan on ordering some more down the line. In fact, I've been talking to Eric about having him on the show in the near future. So sometime this year, I hope we can make our schedules line up and we can get him on the show to talk about what he's doing. It's incredible work. It's important work. Some of these serials, if not all of these serials, this is the only place you're going to find them. And he does do a really good job in cleaning them up and making them as presentable as possible. So highly recommended. I want to thank everybody for writing in and calling in. If you want to call in about this episode or any other episode of Monster Kid Radio or anything we've got coming up or just want to chat Monster Kid topics, you can write us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail by calling us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I won't typically sit on your voicemail for two months before playing it on the show. Again, sorry, Rich. So if you want to write in or call in, that's how you do it. I had Keith Rainville on the show at one point talking about lucha horror and hero films, mass Mexican wrestlers fighting the forces of evil, Mexican horror movies, that sort of thing. And Keith, he's kind of an expert on this topic, or at least he's a very well-informed fan. He's the man behind the website from partsunknown.net. Well, what you didn't hear when I had Keith on the show was when we talked briefly about luchadora films, female masked Mexican wrestlers fighting mummies and all sorts of other, well, You'll have to listen to find out. There were a couple of movies that I got through Netflix, Doctor of Doom and Wrestling Women versus the Aztec Mummy. Yeah. Now, there weren't nearly as many female luchador-type films done during the time, which, you know, is for better or worse or whatever. But To me, it's a no-brainer, but I guess there was not as big a market in Mexico for it. Right. The Wrestling Women series, there was actually four... Depending on how you want to, how you want to count the remakes, there's either four or six of those. Oh, okay. Your classical period ones with Lorena Velasquez and Elizabeth Campbell as the Golden Ruby. I love those movies. I love how obvious it is when the wrestling doubles are like a foot shorter and a lot <laughs> heavier than the girls who are the actors. Right. You know, and uh, those are kind of ballsy action movies. You know, they really are. They're not just women standing around looking good. They're actually getting in fist fights and getting kidnapped and then beating the hell out of their captors. They're not waiting to get rescued. They're very proactive. You know, they're, they're very proactive. And I, I wish that series had been more profound. And when people ask me, like, well, you know, if you could make one of these things now, what would you do? And it's like, I would do the luchadoras in a second. Yeah. And that's what hasn't been done. In a post-Nacho Libre world, if you were to put, let's say Santo had a grandson who mm-hmm. was like 6'5 and ripped and big and spoke perfect English and Spanish and could be like the next Santo of the next century, whatever, tomorrow, most of the American public would see his new ring career as, oh, it's like that Nacho Libre stuff. Post-Nacho Libre, everything is just Nacho Libre. That's the commoner, the, yeah. the civilian who doesn't know the genre, just sees everything as that. And... What hasn't been done is, uh, are those luchadoras where maybe you have to update it where they're like mixed martial artists now. You know, maybe now it's Ronda Rousey and some other chick or something, but like, damn, you could do some great stuff, you know, where there's just women just wailing on mad scientists or fighting mummies or whatever. And I'd love to see that more than anything. I think that's what hasn't been done. 
I'd love to see a female masked wrestler hero. Like if Mil Mascaris, I don't think Mil Mascaris is going to pass on his his gimmick or his identity to anybody. I don't know that there's an heir who's going to take that on, and that's a shame because I'd love to see like a woman get it. I'd love to see oh wow, you know that redefined as a luchadora. And it's endlessly frustrating why there isn't a bigger women's wrestling scene in any country. Well, that's you true. know J- Japan had it for a while. It's re- it's kind of recessed now, but. Japanese women's wrestling was the biggest thing going in the 80s, you know, and that was, like, huge. So it can be done. It's just you've got to have the talent pool to do it. I think we probably do in the U.S. It's just that promoters can't figure out how to do it and skirt the exploitation aspect of it. Right. You want a certain amount of attractiveness and sexuality, but not exploitive. You want a certain amount of glamour to it, but you don't want to be like the lingerie football league. You don't want to be <laughs> glow. You don't want to be any of this stuff. But at the same time, you know, realistically, you're not going to put a product on TV that's a bunch of kind of hideous women beating the hell out of each other and getting all messed up in the face. Right. It's like you can't do that either. So it's tough. It's the, it's the conundrum of the female hero. It's the conundrum of women in sports it's just there's no easy answer for it and why haven't we had a black widow movie yet why haven't we had <laughs> it's weird yeah. it's weird it was weird last year when lucy was in theaters but there's no black widow movie so why because it's the same girl you know what i mean like right. like why isn't lucy just black widow you can clearly do this so uh-huh. look I think we're getting there. I think I think Miss Marvel being developed is a good thing. I'm dismayed at Wonder Woman, who can't have her own movie. She just has to have be this adjunct in a in a Superman sequel. But uh, you know, I don't know. This this there's some hope there. Who knows? But I love the fact that there's this sizable series of old Mexican movies that had these female central and mm-hmm. those are super fun movies i'm i'm a huge fan of, of lorena velasquez in general she's just the queen of mexican genre cinema and anything she's in is better for her being in it i don't know much about her she's done a lot of genre work yeah yeah you know she was the vampire queen and samson versus the vampire women she's basically every era of every genre in mexico she's in like one of the better examples of it Oh, okay. Uh, she was just a statue. You know, she was just really, really expressive in the face. And she never got a good voice in the dubbing. Dubbing voices are always a letdown. So, but no, she's great. And if you ever see, there's a British documentary. It was a TV series called The um, Son of the Incredibly Strange Film Show. Yeah. You I actually, just watched that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the second series, the Sun one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where, where he went to Mexico and interviewed all these people. And you have this aging Lorena Velasquez with the Aztec mummy suit and Johnny Legend just walking around the pyramids. And it's like, oh, my God, that's so cool. She's just yeah. so amazing. Samson and the Vampire Women. Deep in the bowels of the earth live the most savage and vicious of all women. They capture, they drain the blood from human beings to make themselves beautiful in Samson and the Vampire Women. These two blue marks close together on the victim's neck are what have me puzzled, Inspector. Besides that, we didn't find one drop of blood in the corpse. Why, you could swear that a vampire murdered the girl. Hey, now that I think about it, I'll bet those monsters were vampires, Doc. 
the mighty Samson set fire to the vampire's cave. In Samson and the Vampire Women. Jonathan Malcolm Lampley is the author behind the book Women in the Horror Films of Vincent Price. And last February, during Women in Horror Month, I had him on the show and we talked about his book. And we ended up talking about Vincent Price movies and even kind of sidelined into a brief discussion about the director, Michael Reeves. Of course, a lot of that has to do with director Michael Reeves, Mm -hmm. who uh, has a tiny cult following, a tiny but zealous, uh, certainly. He only completed three movies, made a total of three and a half movies, and every one of them had a horror star in it, which is amazing. He completed work on uh, Castle of the Living Dead, which starred Christopher Lee and a very young Donald Sutherland. I don't think he actually shot any of Lee's scenes, but then his first film as a solo director is The She-Beast with Barbara Steele, and then he followed it up with a remarkable film called The Sorcerers with Boris Karloff. And then came Copper Worm, or Witchfinder General, as they called it, with, with Price. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any of Reed's other films? I have seen the Christopher Lee film. Well, I saw it. I take that back. Uh, that was one of the films they showed on TV when I was a, a kid. And I know I watched it, but I can't remember it. So that's one I need to see again. <laughs> and I haven't seen Speak since I was a kid. You've never seen The Sorcerer. I have not seen that one. It's on my list of ones that I need to see. I haven't seen it, though. so It's really a cool film. Right on. And especially when you know they made it for about 50 cents. Uh, not counting <laughs> uh, Street. Well, and that was one of the movies towards the end of his career, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, 67 is when they came out. It's a film that, frankly, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing remade if it was made by people who were careful. And that's a mighty big if, as you know, when it comes to remakes of sequels. But it's a very neat film, particularly given what they managed to accomplish with the limited budget. And it has never, to the best of my knowledge, gotten a legitimate uh, release in the U.S. But certainly, if your listeners can track down the sorcerers, I strongly recommend it. And, uh, of course, Conqueror Worm, a.k.a. Witchfinder General. Well, that's just mine. The She-Beast, deadlier than Dracula, wilder than the werewolf, more frightening than Frankenstein. Another victim of a strange revenge, wreaked on the innocent from beyond the grave, hurling a town into a terrifying struggle against the powers of darkness. The Witch Verdella, known to be dead for centuries, comes to blood-chilling life before disbelieving eyes, unleashing all manner of monstrous evil in the town in which she was supposed to have breathed her last. You'll see a creature of the damned damning the living to destruction when you ceased. Starring Barbara Steele, Mel Wells, and co-starring John Carlson. You'll see a monster in human form defy her doom as the townspeople drag her from her cave to the witch's dunking chair. 
Nicholas Hatcher is the man behind the podcast Vampire Over Hollywood. You can find him at VampireOverHollywood.com. He's been on the show a couple of times now. Well, the first time he was on the show, we talked about the Dwight Fry and George Zuko film, Dead Men Walk. Awesome film. Well, he and I also talked about something that is also equally awesome, at least as far as we're concerned. Before we go, I wanted to yeah. mention one thing on your show. You've talked about it before, and it's it's kind of something that's dear to my heart. I love monster movie magazines a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think they're a really big part of our fandom. And I, I, I even go out on a limb and say that I don't think we'd be sitting here if it wasn't for Famous Monsters of Filmland and Forey Ackerman. Sure. My favorite magazine is Scary Monsters magazine, and I've been reading it for years. And, you know, I just wanted to put out a call to all your listeners. You know, if you take anything from this away besides seeing – Deadman Walk, go please and subscribe to some monster magazines. Because if we lose this great medium that we have that really has brought us all together in a way, they're just going to go away. You know, there's so many great ones out there. You've talked about a lot of them on your show. You've recommended a lot of them. And so I'm just saying, you know, I love these magazines. I don't want them to become a thing of the past. I think they're a really big part of our fandom. And there's something you get from reading those great monster mags with mm-hmm. those great pictures and, and articles and everything. And it's a different form of media. It's something you can't get from a podcast or reading online. It's it's a different thing, and it's really fun. I just want to encourage everybody, you know, get out there, subscribe to something, subscribe to even Scary Monsters. I just wanted to mention that on your show. No, you know what? Let's talk about that briefly if you have a yeah. moment. Why not? Yeah. Um, Scary Monsters is one of the mainstays, a uh, frequent guest of Monster Kid Radio, Dr. King Green has a column in there. Yes, it's a great column. It's too. an awesome column. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great magazine. Scary Monsters is one that I've written for, and actually I'm working on another article for them now. Excellent. I love monster magazines, and I think they're a big part of, of who we are as monster kids. They they really kind of formed out of Force J. Ackerman and sure. that kind of thing. And you know, it really has continued on through that. And so it's important to me to really get out there and, and keep that print media going. We were talking at the beginning of this about how lucky we are now to where movies can be downloaded in a second. I can go to YouTube and watch Dead Men Walk or whatever. Yes. But back in the day, <laughs> people didn't have access to that. They had Famous Monsters of Filmland with yes. pictures from the movies and a synopsis of the film and that sort of thing. And those magazines are great. I've looked at old issues. I've got some archives here that I've enjoyed immensely. I also really like Castle of Frankenstein magazine yes. uh, from the 60s and 70s, and I, I really enjoy what they were doing there. These days, they don't do a lot of synopses in these magazines because they don't have to. They're available out there, which allows us to get more in-depth yes, with the yes. interviews and the articles and the research. And if you haven't read something like A Scary Monsters or something like that, Fans, you are missing out. Absolutely. I, I'll tell you, you know, I get on the internet and I look up the, you know, new things coming out for genre film fans and everything. But every time I crack open a new magazine, there's this feeling of excitement mm-hmm. and this kind of feeling of wonder. And you look and every time I read one, I find something that I didn't know before. I just think there's something really magical about it. And it's an experience you can't get looking at your computer screen, in my opinion. So... We mentioned Scary Monsters. I think I just mentioned Monsters from the Vault, which is a gorgeous magazine. Oh, yeah. The the covers on that magazine, uh, Daniel Horn's done a lot of them. They're amazing. Yes. Terry Gamble did one as well, which is just fantastic. Yes. Um, there's also Monster Bash, which is done by the people at Monster Bash and Creepy Classics. Mm-hmm. I love Monster Bash magazine. Great magazine. There's you G- mentioned G-Fan. G-Fan. If you're a fan of giant monsters. 
And how can you not be? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, that's a great magazine. I also enjoy uh, Film Facts, which is a little more broad in its uh, its coverage. But I, you know, I I like other kinds of films too, and that they really cover probably my whole gamut of kind of films. They they recently, (laughs) yeah, they they recently did a wonderful uh, two or three part article about all of Lugosi's Poverty Row films, and it was really really good. It really was. So that's a great one. And, uh, you know, cinema retro, things like that. Mm-hmm. Guys, there's lots of great magazines out there. And, you know, unfortunately, magazines as a medium are kind of going away. But we have to keep, you know, supporting these things or else, you know, they're going to be ancient history. A couple of others I'd recommend. Mad Scientist Magazine is really good. I just placed an order for the most recent issue, which has got a gorgeous Mark Maddox cover. I'm going to have to check that out. I haven't yeah, heard of that. Uh, MadScientistZine.com is where you can find that. And nice. It's eight bucks. Oh, you know? well, that's that's so, fantastic. You know? yeah, and the, the cover is gorgeous. It's an issue about Rodan. Oh, sweet. So, you know, I can't wait for that copy to, uh, of that magazine to get here from me. Uh, also, if you go to Amazon, there's a print-on-demand magazine just called Monster. With yeah, I heard you mark. talk about that. Yeah, I, yeah. I need to- I need to check that out, too. That one's pretty good. I really enjoy that as well. It's a little bit more broad. It's not just the classic monster era. They do kind of go international and kind of go into the 60s and 70s, but it's still a really good magazine, so I enjoy that one as well. Are there any others that we can think of off the top of our head? Scary Monsters, Monsters. Oh, Little Shop of Horrors, if you're a Yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, once again, who isn't? Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you aren't, what's wrong with you? Um, Uh But, uh, yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, but... Yeah, you know, there's just there's so much good material out there, and in my opinion, like I said, Forrest J. Ackerman started this whole thing with with us monster kids, and and so we have to continue supporting these things. I agree. I think Famous Monsters and then the Shock Theater package going out to all the Absolutely. TV stations, those two things pretty much laid the groundwork for monster kid dumb fandom for what we're doing today. You know, the way famous monsters would connect other fans across the country through becoming pen pals and just writing letters back and forth. Yes. I believe that if Ackerman was alive today and was active today, he'd totally embrace the podcasting medium and the internet and YouTube and really would just continue that work that he was doing, that wonderful work that he was doing for so long. So He definitely was the original monster kid. He was a great guy. And- is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Sonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. (laughs) 
nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. enough Larry Buchanan? That'd be Alan Trump. He was on the show not too long ago to talk about Zontar, the thing from Venus, and, well, he had a few more things to say about Larry Buchanan and his career. And there are also little things in, in the magazine. Somebody talks about they had a big, I think in the 80s, talking about how much the Texas area had contributed to the film community in recent years. And I think Robert Duvall's film, Tender Mercies, was the one they brought up. And Larry was in the back of the room, and they were talking all about all this, and his films were never given any mention during mm-hmm. this little retrospective. Uh, but he, you know, he's the one to put out. The, I mean, heck, he even had a, a, I don't have this, but he even made a, a gangster film called uh, Bullet for Pretty Boy, about Pretty Boy Floyd that had Fabian Forte, the, the 50 star in it. There are posters that I've seen for that from the U.S., and there's also a British quad poster. So... I think Larry did very well for himself in his life. He accomplished exactly what you said. He accomplished a, a film career. I, I think he had four kids. Uh, I think they were pursuing careers. Some of his troop went on to things like Bill Thurman showed up in, uh, boy, Peter Bogdanovich is the last picture show. <laughs> um, I think he was in Tom Horn with Steve McQueen. And he was in a horror film, I think, called Mountaintop Massacre. Yeah. And Tony Houston, Keith... He went on to become a big lawyer, <laughs> and he married Pat Delaney, Martha, in real life. Oh, did he really? Yeah, so you know, so it's interesting what happens. I, I think that Buchanan is out there in the consciousness. One of the most interesting things, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, and I know we're running along, but Santar was adopted by the Canadian uh, comedy show SCTV as a creature, and they remade kind of Santar as one of their episodes. So you had... Conrad Bain's brother, Conrad from Different Strokes, the, the TV show, he was Zontar's ally on Earth, and their plot was they, they take over the Second City TV television studio. Zontar lands his little flying saucer, or, which is literally a saucer or a frisbee on the roof. Little cabbages come out of it, and the cabbages come and hit you in the back of the neck, and then they control you. So instead of pods, you have little tiny cabbages that people are running around with on the back of their heads and saying, praise Zontar, Zontar. So they're all controlled that way. And, and it turns out that they have special guest stars, people playing them. Dr. McCoy from Star Trek figures out there's all an alien invasion going on. They finally meet and see the transmission from planet Zontar, who is ruled by the magnificent, magnificent John Candy as Zontar, who's a bald guy who says, really, we only wanted to take you over because, you know, we really like your TV shows. And he says, don't you think like with my bald head, I look like Colonel Kurtz in uh, Apocalypse Now? <laughs> I, you know, it's so, so consciousness of his films is out there. And, oh, you know, man. You've got what, uh, I think they've read that Peter Wolf did a song called Mars Needs Women, of course, based on another one of Buchanan's films. Sure. The Australian band Hoodoo Gurus in the 80s, I guess, put out an album called Mars Needs Guitars. So there is a little bit of crept into the collective unconscious, a little bit, I think. But I think his, his life probably ended a lot sweeter than, say, somebody like, unfortunately, Ed Woods. Oh. <laughs> 
The message is, Mars needs women. These were the words that startled the world. This was the reason for an invasion that shocked the Earth. Martians, beings from outer space, with one prime objective, women, Earth women, to help repopulate their dying planet, to bring new blood to an ancient civilization. Beauty and the beasts, only the beasts were men, Martian men, every woman checked and double checked, only the most perfect, the most beautiful. Is Earth to be ravished because Mars needs women? And finally, author Paul McComas and the biggest Lon Chaney Jr. fan that I know had an interesting idea for a double feature of two 1940s monster movies that I don't think I would have put together until he mentioned it. I mentioned I Walked with a Zombie, and you and I did a two-parter on that. Yes. Uh, there are some interesting parallels between that film and, uh, and The Wolfman. I could see that. And I guess the one that leaps to mind is the use of an outcast subculture mm-hmm. to speak the truth. In, in I Walk with a Zombie, it's the black indigenous population of St. Sebastian, uh, the island, and uh, it's the gypsies and the wolfman. And in both cases, they're not taken seriously by the sort of Anglo or European culture that is calling the shots. They're in some ways even um, suspected. Uh, but uh, they actually know what's going on. They, their belief in the supernatural turns out to be valid by the end of the film. That's a really good point. And now I want to do those. As, I would love to see those two as a double feature now. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> watching these it two works. classic films from the 40s. That'd be amazing. And out of their West Indian island comes a tale of terror and voodoo, of witchcraft and zombies, and all the weird black magic that the white man seldom sees. It is a tale of brother against brother and their love for a woman who lived with the dead. And it is also the tale of a young nurse who never believed such things could happen. Are you trying to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland? Better doctors. Dambala, this woman is ill. This is the ceremony of voodoo death. A ceremony that seeks the life of the woman who lives forever, who walks with the dead. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'm going to say it to the end. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film of all time, so much so that the big episode 200 coming out here in a couple of days, we're going to talk about Creature from the Black Lagoon with a few other people, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I wanted to talk briefly about... A breakdown that was set in by listener Ken Blose. He took a look at the original creature film, just the first one, and he sent me an Excel sheet over 159 lines of data. He went through, he watched the movie, he timed how long the creature was on camera, he determined who was playing the creature at the time, he noted what kind of shot it was, a long shot, a medium shot, a close-up, that sort of thing. 
So if he wasn't sure on the actor, he did to put a question mark on there. It's amazing work here. He described every single scene that the Gill Man appears in in Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm not going to read all 159 lines of data here. However, I will tell you that his final analysis read this. In the movie... There are 829 seconds of the creature, and he is including that bone hand of the creature at the beginning of the movie because, hey, it's technically a gill man. That's 13 minutes and 49 seconds in a movie that runs, well, 4,723 seconds. 17.5% of the movie includes the creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, 123 seconds of that creature appearance, we don't know who the actor was. Not really 100% sure. That's two minutes and three seconds. 2.6% of the movie. The rest of it, though, it's either Browning or Chapman playing the Gill Man. 367 seconds of it is Riku Browning. The rest would be Ben Chapman. And that fossil hand I mentioned ago, it appears for 130 seconds in the film. At one point, it does seem to repeat the shot, but hey, it counts. I'm going to make a version of this spreadsheet available over at monsterkidradio.net. It'll probably go live at some point Today, May 5th. So go check that out if you're interested in seeing Ken's excellent work. Ken, thank you so much. This is amazing. We'll get back to the creature here in a second. First, before we wrap up, I want to tell you about our website, monsterkidradio.net. It's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes of the podcast. I already reviewed our contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line, 503-479-5MKR. That's on our website. We also have a link to our live 365 internet radio station where we're playing music and trailers from classic monster movies. If you haven't gotten sick of movie trailers, because I know I played a lot in this episode we have links to every song that's appeared here on the show every band that's given us permission to play their music we have a link back to their website where you can buy their music and thank them for supporting monster kid radio we also have a link to our patreon page where you can become a patron of monster kid radio and help support the show this way and maybe grab yourself a couple of awesome rewards along the way. We also have a Facebook group. Now, there's a poll in the Facebook group. I'm going to start a new poll sometime during the day on Tuesday, May 5th. So if you're a Facebook user, look us up on Facebook, get to the group, and join, and I'll get you added right away. We also have a Facebook page that you can like at facebook.com slash Monster Kid Radio. Of course, we also have our Monster Rally Checkpoint newsletter, which you can subscribe to on our website at monsterkidradio.net. Okay, Creature, episode 200. Let's make this a big deal, y'all. We're going to do a roundtable discussion with Stephen D. Sullivan, Tracy Morris, and Chris McMillan. The three of these repeated guests on Monster Kid Radio are joining me for a sit-down conversation about Creature from the Black Lagoon and the possible remake. We're going to talk about some of the news that's come up, or at least some of the rumors that have come up about the upcoming remake, what we would really like to see in a remake of Creature, why the movie's important to us as Monster Kids. It's going to be a good time, and it's probably going to be a slightly longer episode than normal because, well, it's episode 200, and I didn't want to cut the roundtable in half. So come back for that monsterkidradio.net iTunes Stitcher anywhere you listen to podcasts you're going to be able to find us there here in a couple of days until then remember that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course that doesn't apply to the song 
Midnight Beach Party. That belongs to the band Invisible Dracula. It's on the Invisible EP, and you can get it over at invisibledracula.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you here in a couple of days for episode 200. (laughs) 